Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Good evening. Before we get started, I just want to say how happy I am to be at Christ Covenant. I just love it here. Um, I was in Italy last week and was explaining uh, to several people what the Lord is doing here in Buckhead, and they couldn't believe it. They were amazed. So I'm so thankful to be here. Well, I'd like to focus your attention tonight on a rather unique technique, a rather unique technique that the Apostle Peter uses to emphasize to you the importance of doing what he has to say. He does something to motivate you that no other New Testament writer does. See if you can detect what it is as we read the passage together. Now, I'm going to ask you to stand again for the reading of God's Word, please. 1 Peter chapter 1 will begin reading in... Second Peter, sorry. 2 Peter chapter 1 will begin reading in verse 5. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with goodness, goodness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective, or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will richly be provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And... I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. This is God's word. It's the truth. You may be seated. Well, did you catch it? Peter tells you to do something. Then he explains why it's so important for you to do what he says. Then, just in case he didn't convince you, he gives you another reason for doing what he says. After that, he again tells you to do it and offers you three additional reasons why you should. Then he tells you that what he wants you to do is so crucial and indispensable to your faith that he intends to pester you about doing it, even though he knows that you already are doing it. The next thing he does is to explain that because his time in short is short, he intends to remind you about the importance of doing what he tells you to do for the rest of his life. And if that doesn't convince you, he says, I'm going to make every effort to ensure that when I'm gone, you'll be able at any time to remember what I've asked you to do. 
Now, I want to unpack this for you verse by verse. First, Peter tells you to do something. It has to do with your becoming like Jesus Christ. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Then he explains to you why it's so important for you to do what he says. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if you want to have an effective and fruitful walk, you'd better pay attention and do what I say. So, brothers and sisters, if you're ineffective, or lazy, as the word implies, and unfruitful in your Christian walk, it just might be because you're not doing what he tells you to do in this passage. Now, just in case that didn't convince you, he gives you another reason to do what he says. He says, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. He says, if you don't do what I'm saying, you're going to lose sight of and even forget the gospel. Now, much has been written recently about the importance of uh, reminding yourself, remembering your justification, or some people like to say, preach the gospel to yourself. But this passage indicates that the process of making every effort or being diligent to do what you're supposed to do will facilitate your recollection of the gospel your recollection of what Christ has done through your union in Christ, through your justification. You see, the door swings both ways. The fact that we've been justified, of course, is a great motivation to grow in grace. But obeying also serves to remind us to keep in the forefront of our mind the realities of our justification. So as Daniel Towner put it, we are to trust and obey. Now, having given you this warning, he again tells you to be diligent to do what he's told you to do, and then he offers three additional reasons why you should listen to him. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these things, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will richly be provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The first reason, he says, you should do what I say, is to give you assurance or confirmation to substantiate the fact that you truly are a Christian. To the extent that you're diligently following his instruction, you'll know for sure that you've been saved. But if you're lazy or apathetic about doing what he says, you'll have doubts about your relationship with Christ. The second reason he offers to motivate you to follow his instructions has to do with your stability. Do you consider yourself to be a stable person, one who's not easily upset or disturbed, or do little things in life trip you up, cause you to stumble, as this word literally means? The more willing you are to diligently follow his direction, the more steady and consistent you will be. The third reason Peter gives you to persuade you to do what he says has to do with the reception that you'll receive when you first walk through the gates of heaven. Have you ever thought about that? 
Am I going to have a routine, run-of-the-mill sort of entrance into heaven, or is it going to be spectacular? For in this way, there will richly, lavishly be provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if this verse teaches that some of us are going to get a rich welcome, and it does, it means that some of us are going to get not quite so spectacular an entrance. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. No other foundation can be laid except that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. If one builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one does. If work, if the work that anyone has built upon the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only by or as by fire. The next thing Peter does in this passage is to explain to you what he wants you to do is so crucial and indispensable to your faith that he intends to pester you about doing it even though he knows that you're already doing it. Therefore, he says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. The word always means constantly, continuously, at all times, assiduously. What is it that he's going to do with such tenacity? He's going to remind you to bring and keep these things in front of you. He's going to pester you about them. After I really understood what this passage means, I decided to refer to Peter as Pesky Peter. Pesky Peter penned an epistle of profound importance. But I already know these things. Why must you keep on bugging me about them? Remember when you were a kid, if you have any young people here, your parents keep on telling you the same thing? Why? It's probably because what they're telling you is important and they know or believe that you'll forget if they don't remind you of it. Have you guys ever seen that hilarious, I think it's hilarious, Geico commercial with the parrot and the pirate? You know, there's this uh, thunderstorm in this boat in the ocean and there's this British looking guy who's about to walk the plank and uh, the pirate is talking and he's got a parrot on his shoulder. Says, let's feed them to the sharks. And then the, uh, the parrot mimics him. Let's feed them to the sharks and take all of his gold. And the parrot says, and take all his gold. And at this point, the parrot starts going rogue. He starts going off script. And hide it from the crew. <laughs> They're all morons anyway. I never said that. And they smell funny too. It's hysterical. But at the end of the commercial, at the end of the commercial, the announcer comes on and he says, if you're a parrot, you repeat things. It's what you do. Geico needs to have a new commercial, a sequel, at the end of which it says, if you're a parent, you repeat things. 
It's what you do. The next thing he says is that he knows his time on earth is short. Therefore, he intends to remind you about the importance of doing what he says for the rest of his life. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up, to stimulate your thinking by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Reminders stimulate your thinking, even if you react negatively to them. When I teach or preach or even counsel somebody, and I get a visceral reaction, they don't like what I say, it usually doesn't bother me. Why? Because I know at that point in time, they just memorized what I said. And maybe six months or three years down the road, when their life falls apart, they'll remember. You know, I was in his office one time, and he told me this. Maybe he was right after all. And if that doesn't motivate you sufficiently, he says, I'm going to make every effort to ensure that when I'm gone, you'll be able at any time to remember to do what I've asked you to do. He says, I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter wanted to ensure that after he was gone, his instructions would be so deeply entrenched in their memory that they would be able to call them up at any time. He wanted them, he wants you to have total recall. Do you think whatever it is that the Apostle Paul is asking you to do is pretty important? Do you know what he's asking you to do? You should. You've read the book of 2 Peter how many times? What is it that he wants you to do that's so important? He wants you to make every effort to develop seven qualities. That's it? That's the big deal? He took up all that space in my Bible just to tell me to work on seven qualities? Really? Really? Why did he use so many words? Because these seven character traits are vital to your growth as a Christian. Godliness has value not only in this life, but also in the life that is to come. So, if I asked you, and I'm not going to do it, but let's suppose I asked you, to stand and recite all seven of these qualities in order without glancing up at the passage. How many could do it? Well, I maybe couldn't do all of them, but I could do a few. All right, well, good. Can you recite from memory five or six or four? If so, good for you. If not, what are you waiting for? After all the trouble that Peter went to, through to remind you to remember these things, shouldn't you have committed them to memory long ago? Should not this be one of the first passages that every growing Christian commits to memory? Peter, not to mention the Holy Spirit who directed him to write these things, urges you to do so. He urges you to remember these seven things, i.e. to memorize at least verses 5 through 7. The point I want to drive home tonight is the determination that you must have and the effort that you must exert as you cooperate with the Spirit in the process of your growth and development as a Christian, your growth and development into the image of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with 
virtue, the first quality. The phrase, make every effort, may literally be interpreted applying all effort. We might say, bring all of your energies, all of the energies of your faith to bear on the matter. Put everything you have into it. Let me invite you into my counseling office for a moment and listen to a dialogue that I might have with any number of you. Lou, I've been struggling with this sin for seven years and I, I can't seem to get it under control. Well, I'm glad you came to see me about it. Tell me up to this point, what have you done as you've struggled with this sin? Well, you know, I've prayed about it. I've confessed it to the Lord and asked his forgiveness a hundred times. I've told him how sorry I am that I keep falling into it. And I've asked him to help me not do it anymore. I even made a vow not to do it, which I kept for 13 days. By the way, I don't recommend that you do that, most of you. I see. Well, did you find someone to hold you accountable? Well, not really. Well, did you radically amputate those things from your life that were regularly causing you to stumble? Well, sort of, but I didn't get rid of everything. I see. Have you found those passages in the Bible that talk with removing your sin and replacing it with its biblical alternatives? Well, I, I kind of glanced at a few of them, but I didn't break open my concordance, if that's what you mean. Okay, well, how often do you read your Bible anyway? Oh, about two, maybe three times a week. How do you expect the Spirit to change you from the inside out if you're not giving Him what He needs to do the job? I guess I'm kidding myself into thinking that I really struggle. I really haven't struggled at all. Many Christians, when they struggle with sin, don't really struggle at all. Oh, they simply confess their sins to God, pray that he'll change them, promptly get off their knees, believing that somehow God is going to zap them from heaven with an infusion of grace with virtually no effort on their part. He's just going to infuse them with grace by virtue of their prayer and their confession. Beloved, it doesn't work that way. The Spirit works through the Word. If you don't get anything else from this message, leave here memorizing this. The Spirit works through the Word. The, the, the passage teaches that to not diligently strive to supplement your faith with these things is to be so nearsighted that you become blind, having forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. So before we continue, let me ask you, how much effort, how much time, energy, conscientious thought have you been actively investing in becoming more like Jesus Christ? How much of a priority is it for you? This passage is about developing character as a Christian. The, the things Peter wants you to remember are seven sequential building blocks of character. Christian character relates to your development of certain communicable attributes of Christ as they apply to your external conduct and internal thoughts and motives. And there are many other scriptures that talk about this idea of Christian character development. Really, we're talking about the doctrine of progressive sanctification, right? In Romans 8, 28 and 29, the phrase is, be conformed to the image of his son. In Ephesians 4, 22, 23 and 24, put, off, um, put on the old self, which in the likeness of God has been created with righteousness and holiness of truth. 
You know, put off the old man. Be renewed in your mind. Put on the new man. 2 Peter 4, our passage. Let's look up at verse 4. For by these he, God, has granted to us precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become, here comes the phrase, partakers of the divine nature. Talking about character development. Talking about progressive sanctification. Having escaped, that's the corruption that's in the world through lust. Now, before we proceed any further, I want to make sure you understand the answer to a very important question. Who's responsible for this restoration process? Progressive sanctification is a work of God, but it's a work that requires our cooperation. We must collaborate with the Holy Spirit every day. As Peter puts it, in verse 5 of our text, we must make every effort to add certain things to our faith. And there are other Bible passages that talk about this collaboration. Let's quickly mention a few. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, you all know this, right? We um, yeah, work out your own salvation. That's your responsibility with fear and trembling. For it is God, the Holy Spirit, who works in you to make you willing and able to do his good pleasure. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror, mirror of God's word, the glory of the Lord, our responsibility to look in the word, right, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the spirit of the Lord. That's God's responsibility. What's this glory to glory business all about anyway? If you look at a white wall, it's white. You put a projector on a white wall with a 1,000 ANSI lumens, it becomes whiter, more glory, right? 2,000 ANSI lumens, even more. What the passage is saying, as you look into the Word of God and you uh, understand it and you work at developing, by God's grace, the character of Christ, you will grow from one level of glory, spiritual maturity, to another level of spiritual maturity, to another level of spiritual maturity. Romans 8 If the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who is in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation to live not according to the flesh, for if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. Okay? So God will give you the power. That's his responsibility. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, there are many other passages that talk about um, collaborating with the Holy Spirit and being conformed to the image of his son. Um, Romans, yeah, we did it, Romans 8, 28 and 29. The scriptures, and this is the most important part, the scriptures are necessary, are a necessary part of your sanctification. Let's look up at verse 2 of our text. We didn't read this, but let's jump up there. 2 Peter 1 two, three, and four. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing as his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. For by these promises, right, he's granted to, I'm sorry, for by these uh, traits, he has granted to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. 
These he has granted to us exceeding precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. Through whom does this knowledge come? God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through Sigmund Freud, through B.F. Skinner, through Dr. Phil, Dr. Laura, Rick and Bubba. No, God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us to glory and virtue. Where do we obtain the knowledge of him who calls us to glory and virtue? In this book. Through the knowledge of Christ, we are transformed into his image. Now, the thing I want you to understand that for us, these precious promises are found in God's word. You remember what Peter said in his first epistle? Like newborn babies long for the sincere milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. I've met an astounding number of Christians who believe they can grow in God's grace apart from regular and continuous, and I mean like daily, not to be legalistic, but we should strive for daily uh, input in God's word, time in God's word, Bible reading, Bible studying, Bible memory, Bible meditation, scripture, um, podcast, that kind of thing. It doesn't matter that much how much time you spend evangelizing, doing good things in church, like the hands ministry, right? Fellowshipping with other Christians. If you are not in God's word, or to put it in more biblical terms, if the word of Christ does not dwell in you, you are for all intents and purposes handcuffing the Holy Spirit. That's strong. Yeah, it is. The Spirit works through the Word. Why do you think He's going to change the rules for you? Why do you think you're going to be able to grow? You're going to be able to be conformed to the image of Christ if you're not giving the Spirit what He needs to, take, to change you. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's the sword of the Spirit. Arguably, the sword of the Spirit is, is the, it's the uh, Rama, the Word, the, the spoken Word that's on your tongue because it's in your heart that the Spirit most effectively uses to change us into the image of Christ. So again, you know, the Holy Spirit is God. He can do anything he wants to do, but I think it's pretty arrogant for us to think he's going to make a special exception for us and to, you know, uh, radically transform us apart from the means that he said he would use in the Bible, which is God's word. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. You simply cannot change in ways that are pleasing to God apart from the Spirit working in conjunction with the word in your heart. Now I'm going to assume like Peter did that most of you in this room have faith, saving faith. He says he's writing up in verse 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter wrote to those who he believed were truly Christians, to those who were depending on Jesus Christ and him only by what he has done in dying in their place for their salvation. We get credited with his righteousness. We 
get put into our eternal banking account the gazillion dollars worth of holiness that we need to get in. We put our faith in him. He takes the blame, the penalty. He dies as our substitute, takes the blame for all the sins we've ever committed. Let's take another look at the Greek word for supplement in verse 5. It was often used to speak of expenses that were incurred in the process of accomplishing a task. Peter says that we must be prepared to invest whatever it takes to accomplish this task of character development. It's like my basil plants. Uh, you know, I lived in Alabama for 20 years, and it's very hard to find good, ba- I love basil, and it's very hard to find good basil in Alabama, which I sometimes refer to as the um, epicureal purgatory of the South. Anyway, <clears throat> sorry, you gotta love me. Um, so I have to grow on my own, right? I brought back two great, well, anyway, I won't tell you about it. Never mind. Uh, so, so um, you know, I, I buy the, the seeds from Italy. I have to order a special place in there. I get the seeds. I start them in these little tiny cups, right? I water them every day. They start to sprout. Um, sometimes I actually put them on a little heating pad to, to speed up the process, you know, and then I transfer them from the little cup to a big cup and then out into the gar- garden. God provides the life inside the seed, but every day I have to water them. I have to put some effort into it, sometimes twice a day if it's really hot. I've got to put forth the effort. God does it, but I've got to cooperate with the program. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. So he asked them to supplement or add to his faith seven vital things. Once the Lord saves you, once he supplies you with saving faith, you are to supply certain things. It's a little bit like going to a tailgate party, right? The guy who invites you to the party, uh, you know, he, he'll bring the smoked ribs and the smoked chicken and the sausage. If he's smart, he'll bring Italian sausage or maybe Kaneka sausage, you know. And then you're supposed to bring what? You're supposed to bring a dessert or a side dish or something like that, right? That's the idea. God supplies your faith, and now you've got to bring these other things to the party. So I memorized this chapter early in my Christian life, but something about it really confused me. Why does Peter begin with virtue? I mean, think about that. Why does virtue come before knowledge? How can I possibly have virtue before I have knowledge? Isn't he putting the cart before the horse, I used to think to myself? Doesn't everything flow from knowledge? Well, it wasn't until I checked the uh, Greek dictionary that I understood that there are two meanings for this particular word. One means moral excellence, but there's an older meaning of the word that uh, makes more sense to me here. In classical literature, it was essentially used to convey the idea of courage, vigor, valor, or manliness. I think what Peter's talking about is that we've got to have a certain mindset. He's saying that the first thing you need to add to your faith is manly courage. He says, look, the Christian life is often difficult and you need to put on your big boy pants and man up. You've got to have courage. So the reason virtue comes before knowledge is because virtue disposes us to courageously take the initiative to do what follows. That is to acquire the knowledge of how we become partakers of the divine nature. And supplement your virtue with knowledge. Now, the word for knowledge here is not the same word used in verses 2 and 3. Take a quick look at that. He uses a different word twice. 
May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full knowledge, the complete knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. As his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the full knowledge, the complete knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence. Well, this is a full knowledge. So one of my favorite Italian tomatoes is called, uh, let's see if I can do the Italian word, um, cuore di bue, heart of cow. Years ago when we went there, I bought one at the market in Venice, and I took it home, and it, it's the ugliest looking tomato. It sort of looks like this, you know, it sort of looks like that, and it's got these deep ridges in it, and uh, it's just delicious. It's very, very sweet. It does, it's not very readily inside, but it's just a very delicious tomato. So I was in Padova last week, and I went into the supermarket. When I go to places, I just always go into the supermarket, spend a couple hours in the supermarkets just to kind of see what I'm missing and enjoy the food. So I'm going through the produce, and I, and I saw these heart of cow tomatoes. They were green and yellow. And so I didn't know if I was going to be able to buy them and stay there long enough, four or five days, for them to turn red. Well, I went to Venice a few days later, and guess what? Here they are, red as can be. That's the idea. So this kind of knowledge in our passage is a little bit green. It has room for growth. It probably refers to a growing discernment that progressively understands the difference between what is right and what is wrong. Solid food, the writer of the Hebrew says, belongs to those who are mature, to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern the difference between good and evil. The word knowledge implies that um, there's no crash course in progressive sanctification, spiritual maturity, right? Growth takes time. You know, as much as I wanted to buy that tomato in Padova, it needed three or four or five days to, to really, really mature. It doesn't happen quickly. It's not like I put them in the microwave, you know, and zap it, right? By the way, never put tomatoes in the refrigerator. You put tomatoes in the refrigerator, it kills their taste. That's free. And supplement your knowledge with self-control. Once you know the difference between right and wrong, you develop the self-discipline necessary to stay away and abstain from those things you realize are sinful. Now, when the Bible speaks of self-control, it's not self-control versus God's control. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. It's self-control versus somebody else's control, right? A self-controlled person from within his own self knows it's time to get up, time to go to work, time to read my Bible, time to go to bed, a person who doesn't have self-control must depend on other people to develop self-control. It's sort of like the scaffolding that was around the Capitol building a few years ago. You remember that ugly scaffolding? They had to put this artificial structure around it until they could strengthen it and clean it and everything else. And they took, when it was ready, right, then they took away the scaffolding and it was not necessary any longer. Self-control is the ability to consistently make wise decisions and fulfill one's responsibility on the basis of God's word, not on the basis of one's feelings. Self-controlled people are obedience-oriented. People who don't have self-control follow their feelings. It's the biggest enemy is your feelings. If you're self-disciplined, you do what you have to do, whether you feel like it or not. If you're not self-disciplined, you follow your feelings. And that brings us to the next virtue. I, I wish I had more time to unpack these for you, but I need to run through this. Supplement your self-control with steadfastness. 
Self-control and steadfastness go hand in hand. In order to perfect the former, you've got to have the latter. You can't, if you don't have self-control, it's not going to happen overnight. So you've got to work on developing self-control, but then you have to be steadfast. You need to have endurance because it's going to take a while. You know, you got to keep on working on developing self-control and you have to endure. You have to hang in there, hang tough. You have to be steadfast until little by little you become more disciplined, less and less necessary for you to depend on other people. Sometimes people come into counseling offices, Christian counseling offices, biblical counseling offices. They say, I tried it God's way and it didn't work. Well, if you tried it God's way, I say to myself, it should work. Tell me what you did. I did A, B, C, D, E, F, G. H-I-J-K-L-M-N-O-P. You did A-B-C-D-E-F-G, H-I-J-K-L-M-N-O-P, and it didn't work? That's right. How long did you do it for? Oh, about two and a half weeks. At which point I open up the Bible to the book of Hebrews, and I, actually I can cite it from memory. Hebrews 10.36 you have need of endurance, of steadfastness, the same word, so that when you've done the will of God, or we would say after you've done the will of God, you'll receive the promise. Not when I've done it for a day or two or a week or two or a month or two, but when you've done what the Bible says you should do, when you've gone against your feelings, when you've done Scripture, as long as it takes for the change to accomplish, you receive the promise. Again, there's no such thing as instant spirituality. You've got to hang in there. You've got to be steadfastness or you'll never develop the kind of character that you need. Supplement your steadfastness with godliness. Godliness comes through discipline. Bodily exercise profits a little but godliness is profitable for all things, having value not only for the life that now is, but also for the life that is to come. That's 1 Timothy 4, 7. Godliness is the reverential conviction that I must, as well as the determination that I will, by God's grace, please and honor God with all of my mind, soul, will, and strength, with all of my words, actions, thoughts, and attitudes. It's the opposite of ungodliness or better still, impiety. And supplement godliness with brotherly kindness. Now this has to do with loving other people in the church, other believers. The reason for this brotherly affection, the thing it produces is not some attractive feature of the other person that you're loving. In other words, I don't love this person because there's something really, really cool or interesting about him. Rather, it's the fact that he's a part of my family one of my father's other children whom he deeply loves. Are there members of your family, I don't mean your church family, I mean your like home family, right? That really rub you the wrong way? Any with whom you argue regularly and passionately? Who comes to mind right now? Now even these family members, even though these family members irritate you, even though you often wonder how they could possibly be related to you, even though you sometimes secretly wish they weren't part of the family, at the end of the day you love them because they are, in fact, part of the family. 
And although you have no problem picking a fight with them and maybe even, the, maybe even persecuting them a little bit on occasion, woe be unto anyone outside the family who messes with them or tries to hurt them. They're your family, and although you don't always like them, you defend them, you watch out for them, you help them, you take care of them, you show them kindness and affection that you know they deserve most of the time because they're members of your family. And supplement your brotherly kindness with love. This is love for everybody. So seven, sixth characteristic, love for the church. Seventh characteristic, love for everyone. What's the essence of love? Sorry? Love is impartial, okay? Very good. That's right. Even though, you know, it's uh, not part of our family, we have to love them because, you know, we have to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and a neighbor as ourselves. But that's not the exact, that's a good answer, but it's not the answer I'm looking for. It's okay, it's all right. There are lots of good answers, right? For God so loved the world that he, the life that I now live in the flesh, I, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and husbands love your wife as Christ loved the wives as Christ loved the church and all right, so love is giving, right? That's the essence of giving. Giving without having anything, without expecting anything in return. Love is the opposite of and the antidote to selfishness. And selfishness is our biggest problem. Selfishness is being more concerned with what we can get than what we can give. Love is being more concerned with what we can give than with what we can get. Well, we're out of time. Have I convinced you of the importance of these seven qualities? Have I motivated you to commit them to memory? Now, look, maybe you can't memorize the whole, you know, 15 verses, first 15 verses. But soon, if you haven't done so, you ought to memorize verses 5 through 7. You've got to get these qualities down. Yeah, verses 5 through 7. These are the things that spell out these are the seven things that God expects you to bring to the party. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.